Um, most of you would be aware there are a lot of commemorations happening this year. You can't turn on the news or get onto a news website without recognizing that there is some 50th anniversary happening someplace in the world. Uh, just this morning, many places, especially in France, are remembering the May 1968 riots that tore apart Paris and that redefined modern French politics. But last month, there was another 50th anniversary that a number of us remembered. 50 years ago, on the 3rd of April 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered what was to be his final sermon at the Charles J. Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's a remarkable, remarkable sermon. It's quite a moving retrospective of the previous 15 years of the civil rights struggle. At times in the sermon, you can gather this as you read it, even more so if you hear it. At times in the sermon, Martin Luther King sounds utterly exhausted. At other times, he sounds euphoric. At times in the sermon, he's amazed at what an entirely nonviolent political revolution managed to achieve. It's a revolution that at one point in the sermon, King calls a dangerous unselfishness. A dangerous unselfishness. At other times in the sermon, even after reflecting on everything that was achieved, he's also despondent, despairing about how much remains yet to be done. But if there's one thing that runs throughout the entire sermon, it's King's conviction that everything that was fought for, everything that was sacrificed, everything that was struggled for over the previous 15 years has not been in vain. He refers to the moral arc of the universe bending towards justice. It might look dark now, but things are moving towards a final reconciliation. The purpose of the sermon, I think, it's not so much King unburdening himself. It's not just that he's reflecting for himself on the previous 15 years. But what he's trying to do quite evidently throughout the sermon is he's preparing those who have gathered for the next step in this struggle. Let me read you one brief portion. It's the very, very, very last bit of the sermon. I don't know what will happen now, King says. We've got some difficult days ahead, but that doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. He's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man, for mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The next day on April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed. This Nonviolent revolution that he had been leading for the better part of 15 years almost immediately collapsed. Almost immediately, more than 110 American cities descended into riots. Black nationalists and militants who had long disapproved of King during his life began to be on the rise. And even now, 50 years on, in the United States, divisions, hostility, 
discrimination, economic injustice, educational injustice remains the persistent experience of so many black Americans. And I think this is something that makes King's final sermon, his final words, almost more tragic and not so much prophetic. He hopes that his brothers and sisters who there gathered with him, he hopes that they will experience equality and harmony and mutual love, but he doubts that he ever will. This is why it's really interesting that as he delivers his final sermon, he's evoking, he's quoting, he's bringing to mind the words that God spoke to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. This is what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 3. He says to Moses, go up to the top of Pisgah, a high mountain. Look west and north and south and east. Look at the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan that they've been heading towards ever since leaving Egypt. Look at the land with your own eyes, since you are not going to cross the River Jordan. But commission Joshua, encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across, and he will cause them to see the land that you will not see. It's kind of clear, isn't it, why King had Moses in mind. After leading so many people out of a form of slavery, in this case, legal slavery, he goes on top of a mountain. He imagines he can see not too far ahead a promise of equality and freedom. But he himself will never experience it. He will never cross over. This is what King is referring to when he talks about, I've gone up the mountain. I've seen what's coming. I may not get there. But this is what's remarkable then, I think, both about King's final sermon, but also the book of Deuteronomy as a whole. The whole book of Deuteronomy is unlike any of the other of the first five books of the Bible. The people of Israel aren't going anywhere. They're not traveling anywhere. They're stuck on the plains of Peor, just this side of the Jordan River. The book of Deuteronomy is preparing the nation of Israel for life without Moses. The book of Deuteronomy is preparing God's people for what comes next when the person who led them out of slavery in Egypt won't continue with them. But it's not exactly like the people of Israel are being left bereft because the previous four books have been all about God's presence coming and dwelling among God's people. So really what Moses is preparing them to do, it's not so much for life without Moses, but it's life with the presence of God, but without the mediating role that Moses played. Remember, Moses is the one who went up the mountain and who spoke with God face to face. Moses is the one who bore the tablets back down from the mountain and delivered it to the people. One of the many reasons that I've I always have these first five books of the Bible in mind whenever I read the Gospels, is that it seems so clear that the Gospels themselves are written very much like these first five books of the Bible. Cast your mind back to Easter. I know it seems like a little while ago now. Actually, it wasn't that long ago. Try to remember back to the fourth Gospel that we read together. Remember, the fourth Gospel begins with an explicit reference to Genesis. 
In the beginning, the word was with God. The word was there with God in the formation of the world. But no sooner are we at the beginning than we see the world plunged into darkness and selfishness and idolatry and violence. The word comes into the world that he has made and the world tries to extinguish it. The light comes into the world and the world tries to snuff it out. But then John tells us, for those who do receive the light that comes into the world, those who do gather around Jesus, who welcome him, among these people, Jesus establishes God's presence. He sets up a tent just like the tabernacle. Jesus lives among the people that have gathered around him just like God's presence lived among the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. But then towards the end of the fourth gospel, in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, a nice big block, Jesus is now preparing the disciples for what comes next. He says, I've come into the world, but now I'm returning to my father. You will be without me. So he is preparing the disciples. This is what life will look like when I'm not there. If the world hated me, Jesus tells the disciples, it will also hate you. If it persecuted me, it will also persecute you. Jesus is preparing them. You will occupy the place in the world that I occupied. If the world hated me, it will also hate you. But then Jesus tells them, just like Moses tells the nation of Israel, you will not be left alone. In the same way that Joshua will lead the nation of Israel over into the promised land, so too, Jesus says, God will send a helper. God will send the Spirit who will guide you, who will lead you. And so we have this remarkable moment at the end of John's gospel. Jesus, after the resurrection, appears to the disciples. He says to them, as the Father sent me, so now I send you. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This sounds an awful lot like a relay race to me. This sounds like the task that Jesus came into the world to do. He is now preparing the disciples to do that same task. The important thing isn't Moses going into the promised land. The important thing is the nation of Israel going over. The important thing isn't Jesus remaining in the world the same way that he did. The important thing is the work that Jesus began in the world being completed through these disciples. And this, I think, is where the analogy with Martin Luther King, it kind of breaks down a bit, isn't it? It's not that once upon a time we had this great charismatic leader who showed us the way, who was far ahead of us and we were following to this bright and hopeful future. And now that leader is gone and the movement falls apart. Instead, the sense that you get reading the Gospels is that Jesus going, the Spirit coming, and the church continuing the task that Jesus began, this is the necessary transition. This is what had to happen for the work to be done. You heard this, didn't you, when we read the gospel reading before? Jesus explains to his disciples in Luke's gospel, this is what is written. 
the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins had to be preached in his name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. Towards the end of the Gospels, Jesus is showing the disciples that what you thought was tragedy, this is what God planned all along. What you thought was tragedy, this is what was written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms. What you thought was disappointment and despair, this is what God planned from the very beginning. Now this, I think, is a really confronting way of thinking about just what it is the church is. Be easy to think about the church as a group of people that are disappointed that its founder is gone. And so we're just trying to sort of muddle through. We are, if you like, a Jesus Appreciation Society. That's not what the church is. If the church is bound by memory of Jesus... It's not because we are memorializing Jesus. It's because we are trying constantly in everything we do, in the practices of our lives, in the way that we worship together, eat together, and pray together. We are trying to bring to mind the pattern that Jesus set for us so that that same pattern can live, can be alive, can motivate us. You see this so clearly at the end of each gospel. As the Father sent me, Jesus says, so I send you. Jesus says to us, to his disciples, you are my witnesses from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. At the end of Luke, and then at the beginning of Acts, as Kirsten read to us before, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. What's the difference between being a Jesus Appreciation Society and being witnesses to what God has done in Christ? What's the difference between those two things? It strikes me that the church often functions very well as an appreciation society. The church often functions not quite as well as Witnesses to Jesus Christ. The role of a witness is to make something visible. You remember Jesus saying in John's gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What Jesus now says to his disciples at the end of John's gospel is, if the world sees you, then they should see Me, the role of being a witness that we play to Christ is the same role of being a witness that Jesus played to the Father. The responsibility of the church in this world is to occupy the place that Jesus occupied when he walked this earth. The role of the church in the world is to live Christ's pattern of life, of selflessness, of radical generosity, and hospitality, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of welcoming one another around a common table, of breaking down the barriers that rip apart human life and behind which humans hide from one another. You can see then just how terrible it is 
when the church begins practicing the same divisions, the same pettiness, the same selfishness, the same stinginess, the same hostility, the same anger that the rest of the world practices? What ought to hold together our common life through the spirit that God has given us are the same patterns of life and behavior that Jesus himself demonstrated. This is what it means when Paul says to the various churches, have the same mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is then what is so moving about the transition from Luke's gospel to Acts. Many people believe that these two books, if they weren't circulated together, they were meant to be read together. The work that Jesus began, the disciples as Christ's witnesses, now continue. The Spirit, if you like, is the breath that brings this body of disciples together and that allows the church to function as Jesus functioned in the world. We're not celebrating communion this morning. But when we do, we are reminded we are the body of Christ. When we eat this bread, when we drink this cup, we remind ourselves of who we are. God, by God's Spirit, has brought us all together. God has put us together like a vast body by breathing the Spirit into us. It is then the church that functions as Christ's body in the world so that when the world sees us, they see how Jesus lived. They see how Jesus gave. They see how Jesus forgave. They see how Jesus welcomed others around common table. They see how Jesus broke apart the barriers that once held apart the human family. When the world sees the church, they see Jesus. Let me conclude then with a prayer that Christians all over the world pray after they've eaten the Lord's Supper together. Listen to this. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. May we who drink his cup bring life to others. May we whom the spirit lights bring light to the world. It's very easy to think of ourselves, isn't it? As a Jesus appreciation society as people who think that Jesus was really good, perhaps even that Jesus was really great, perhaps even that Jesus truly was divine, it is a much harder thing to see the life of the church as the body to whom Christ has passed the baton, whose role it is in the world now to bring that life that we have received to others. Amen.